0: The following message is brought to you by Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We exist to bring glory to God by knowing Christ and making Him known. If you would like to visit our church, we hold multiple services on Sunday mornings starting at 9 a.m. We are located between Motocare Wharf and Edai town. Pickups are available 7 1000 come with me to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. It's good to have you. Uh, We've been traveling through Romans, and we are in Romans chapter 5. We've been in verses 1 through 11 for a couple weeks now, and I've been enjoying as Pastor Matt has been uh, opening that up to us. Romans chapter 5, 1 through 11, let's read that together. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith unto this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, also knowing that tribulations worketh peace, patience, and patience, experience, and experience, hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. And when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God Commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received
1: atonement. Let's get into your Bibles this morning. We'll be in Romans chapter five together. Romans chapter five. The gospel transforms lives. I'm going to say it again. I'll let you think on these words. The gospel. Transforms lives. I've been saved for 28 years. The longer that I'm saved, the more this reality sinks in. The gospel transforms lives. Your life will be different because of the gospel. And this is not some kind of fluffy, puffy, ethereal feeling that you only get at church. It's a reality in life. Your life will be changed. Your Life will be transformed. You'll become someone different because of the gospel. The gospel will transform who you are. It is a new reality that can be experienced. You are no longer condemned under sin. Sin no longer rules over you because of the gospel. You are now not ashamed. You are instead standing as a son of God beside the one who has gotten rid of your sin and justified you. You have a new identity and there are new ways that you will live. I no longer have to fight for my rights and no longer do I have to fight to make people do things that I want them to do. I no longer have to fear what is coming after I die. I can rest in this new identity of who I am in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. I can rest in that identity. I can trust that my Heavenly Father will work all things together for good. And see, the gospel transforms lives. And then I can exhibit the love that he has shed abroad in my heart. I can now exhibit that in my life towards others. For the gospel will transform lives. And I take just a moment and walk through where we've been in the book of Romans, chapters 1 to 3. We saw that the wrath of God was put on display as it's heaped up upon our sins. 64 verses of God's wrath as we spiral further and further in our sin, further away from God. And yet, to the end of chapter 3, from verse 24 to the end of the chapter God demonstrated His love to us by sending Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus took our sin on the cross and in so doing, He turned away God's wrath from us and instead absorbed it Himself. He is the wrath bearer. Took our sins on the cross so that now all we have to do is trust Him. And when we trust Him, we put our faith in Jesus, now we get declared righteous. That's something we cannot attain to. We cannot grasp at it and become righteous. Instead, He declares us righteous. And that happens because of faith. The illustration in chapter 4 was that of Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So you and I also, we believe God. He said, if you'll trust me, I will make you righteous. And He has done that. He's made us righteous. And that is Him imputing righteousness upon us. That's not a word we use very often imputing it's an accounting term he has put it onto our account where before we were lost we had debt to him and now he has changed that you can think in this terms as if you were going into the bank to check on your account and you're going to ask at the bank how much do i still owe on my loan do you ever notice you have a loan You want to pay that off? Finding out exactly how much you owe is sometimes hard to figure out. You go into the bank, how much do I owe on this loan? The interest has accrued, how much do I owe? And it's as if you walk into the bank, and when you ask the bank, how much do I owe, you find out that the CEO has now canceled your debt and instead made you a millionaire. That's imputed. And by the way, that's unjust. For if a bank CEO just went to his computer and type, 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 my good friend, you no longer have debt, you are now a millionaire, they should fire him. That's not just. But you know what is just? When the same bank CEO reaches into his own pocket, makes a deposit into your account to change your account status from being in debt to now you are a millionaire, he is just and he is right and he is merciful and he is gracious. And that's what we got from our Heavenly Father. As He sent Jesus to go to the cross on our behalf, He did not just cancel your debt. He paid it. He sent Jesus to take your sin on the cross, and then He poured out His wrath on Jesus His Son. And then He says, I'll not just get rid of your debt. I'll make you, as it were, a millionaire. I'll bring you into My family. You'll now inherit the world with Me. This is a glorious thing that happens with the Gospel. And that happens only because you believe. It's a simple thing, and yet, oh, so hard for you and I as human beings to accept. God has given his love toward us, and then we saw in chapter 5, those of us that have believed God, put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've seen now five different things that he has given to us. Jesus has provided for those who believe. We've seen those over the last two weeks in chapter 5. I'll walk through them quickly. We have peace with God. We have access into the grace wherein we stand. We have hope in the glory of God. We have hope in tribulation and we have comfort in the midst of trials. These are the things that God has given to us. Jesus has provided to those who believe. We've seen these over the last two weeks. We're at peace with God. We have access into this grace wherein we stand. This is a gift that Jesus has given to us. We were enemies against Him, and now we are at peace with Him. He who is the one who created all things and has every right to destroy us. Instead, He puts us at peace and gives us a grace wherein we can stand. And then He gives us hope of the glory of God. I can look forward to knowing that there's a day when I will no longer be going through the sanctification process. Instead, I will be glorified. What that will look like, I do not know. But there is a promise that I will be glorified like Him. And then we saw last week that there is hope in tribulation. We glory, he said in verse 3, I glory in tribulation. Why? Because tribulation works experience, experience, patience, a patience experience, and experience hope. And hope makes us not to be ashamed, for I will stand there with my Heavenly Father and know that come what may, He will work it together for good, for my good and for His glory. And then he closes verse 5 with a little phrase that then brings us into verses 6 and the following. Look at that phrase at the end of verse 5. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. His love is shed abroad in our hearts. That means I can feel it. I feel the love of God as I look at what He's done for me. And I certainly don't deserve it. Now, I'm just going to give you a glimpse into verse 8, because we'll read verses 6 to 9 in just a moment. But look at verse 8, and you'll see a glimpse as he talks about his love again. So we just felt it in verse 5. Now verse 8, I want you to see it. Verse 8, here's the demonstration. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us commendeth. He puts it on display. He says, here's how much I loved you. I'm going to put it on display so you can see it. So in verse 5, I felt it. In verse 8, I see it. And His love is what is all encompassing, is what brings us into this familial relationship with God. His love. Oh, He has shown it to us, and it's very clear. Now today, in verses 6 to 11, I'll bring three more things for us to see today. Three more things that Jesus has provided for those who believe. I'll show you the first one is in verses 6 through 9. Namely, salvation from the wrath of God. Number one is salvation from the wrath of God. Let me read it for you in verses 6 down to verse 9. Verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man would one even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. And so I see here in verses 6 to 9, the thing that Jesus provides for those who believe, I see, salvation from the wrath of God. And I will say, specifically, I see in verse 9, specifically, future wrath. For there's coming a day when God will pour out His wrath, all of that wrath that has been heaped up, and it was described for 64 verses in Romans 1 to 3, He has been heaping it up, and the day will come when He will finally pour that wrath out on this earth. The book of Revelation speaks much to this. Let me show it to you in verse 9 so that you can see that it is future. Verse 9. Much more than being, that's us, being now justified by His blood, we, future, shall be saved from wrath through whom? Through Christ. So through Christ, we will be saved from the future wrath of God as He pours out His wrath upon this earth. There's coming a day when He will unleash, and you can take your time and read through the seven trumpets and the seven seals, and all of those wraths that will be poured out upon the earth. As God does that because of the sin of man. And who will be saved out of it? Those of us who have believed. Oh, this is a gift from God. He demonstrates His love towards us in that He gives Jesus and He saves us from the wrath That is to come. The wrath of God is a terrifying thing. Please don't make it a Sunday school moment. The wrath of God is a terrifying thing. John Piper says it like this The greatest danger to mankind is not nuclear war or global pandemics or global warming. The greatest danger to mankind is the wrath of God. For nuclear war is but Patty cakes in the street compared to what the wrath of God is. For when He finally, at the end of the book of Revelation, when He finally makes a new heaven and new earth, He will destroy the old heaven and the old earth. It will be burned with fire. Oh, think of the wrath of God. And he's been heaping up his wrath. And he had every right in the very first moment when Adam sinned in the garden. He had every, mo- every right to unleash his wrath in that moment. Just be done with them. Vaporize Adam and Eve. He had every right to do that. And yet he was merciful. And he is merciful daily as the sun rises on our planet day after day. And he is merciful upon us. That he doesn't just reach down and grab the earth and make it stop spinning. Or just move the earth a little bit closer to the sun and cook us all up. It's His mercy every morning that's new. And it's His mercy that does not, oh please, do not lift up our own selves and say, oh how wise we are in that somehow this COVID-19 pandemic did not get us to. Do not look at it that way, for it is the mercy of God that He has not unleashed a microbe microbe upon us that would make COVID-19 look like the sniffles. For one little microbe just makes a little bit of a twist. And you think COVID-19 turned the world upside down. Oh, think of something like Ebola. If only something like that unleashed upon the earth. Oh, how merciful it has been of God to keep that one in one small region. Oh, He is a merciful God as He holds back His wrath. And do not think that His wrath and Him being slow to unleash it at all would be His stamp of approval upon your sin. For He is not giving a stamp of approval. He is giving another day within which you can repent. For the goodness of God, Romans 1 says, the good goodness of God leads us to repentance. He is slow to wrath, and yet so many people Take his mercy for granted, and he has unleashed his wrath in the past. Scripture shows us many times that he has unleashed his wrath. Just think of Jesus walking into the temple and just for a moment showing the wrath of God. As Jesus stands outside the temple and braids the whip, and just for a moment walks through the temple, he's one man. The power of God. And yet one man, and they were not able to stop him. You think for just a moment, someone walks into any one of our markets and starts flipping over the tables. Oh, that will be put to a stop in a hurry. And yet Jesus, not a single one stopped him, all stood with their mouths wide open cannot understand how in the world the power of God, as he walks through and says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves, flipping the tables, the coins go flying, and sets the animals free. Oh, this is the wrath of God on display for just a few moments. I think of Acts chapter 12 and King Herod standing before the people, and when King Herod spoke. Oh, the people said, oh, it is as the voice of God. Herod's mind, he elevated himself. And the very next thing in Acts chapter 12, the very next thing that happened, God smote him dead in front of everybody. Now, that's an embarrassing moment if you're a leader. In the middle of your speech, you got smote dead. And then God said, here, I'm not going to stop with that. I'm going to completely embarrass him. And he was eaten of worms while the people watched. Can you imagine If our nation's leader forbid that it would happen, but could you imagine if that happened in the midst of him giving a speech, falls over dead, and the worms crawl out? Oh, that's the wrath of God in a moment. Humble yourself in the sight of God, or he'll knock you down. And I don't have to go into Noah's flood as God wipes out the entire world and leaves eight floating on a boat. You see he has unleashed his wrath in the past and he will do it again there's coming a day when he will put all those who have not believed he will send them forever to the lake of fire oh his wrath is a serious thing it is the greatest thing that you should fear David Schrock says this every cemetery is a testimony to God's wrath And every funeral is a reminder that eternal death awaits us unless, hear these words, unless we take refuge in the wrath bearer. The only way to escape the wrath of God is to trust the one who took the wrath of God. I trust Jesus, that's your only refuge, is to cling to Christ. I see the beauty of verse number 9 in those words. Look at verse number 9. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. The only way to find refuge from the wrath of God is to cling to the wrath bearer, the one who took my place on the cross. That's the only place that I can ever gain help. So how does Jesus save us from God's wrath? Look back at verse number 6. Verse number 6. We'll walk through 6, 7, and 8 now. to See how it is that Jesus took God's wrath. Verse number 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. He took our sins. He took the wrath of God. But notice the way that it was done. When we were yet without strength. Now please don't think that what he means by without strength was that I was climbing up a mountain and I could make it 75% of the way and I was without strength to get to the top. And so he came along and helped me up to the top. No, no, no. That's not the meaning at all. So the words without strength elsewhere are translated in the book of Acts. It's translated like this. Impotent same word, impotent. Here's, here's, here's the idea. You remember Peter and, Jane, uh, Peter and John were going into the temple and they met a man who was lame, impotent at the gate. And that guy said, please, would you give me some money? And you remember that statement? Peter said, says to him, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I'll give you Jesus. That's, that's, that's the story. And in that story, here's a man who does not even have the strength to be able to stand up and walk. That's where we're at. You don't get 75% of the way up the mountain. You're stuck at the bottom. You can't make it up there. I'll use Ephesians 2's words. Dead in your trespasses and sins. He didn't come along and help you. He made you alive so that you could even receive Him. And here's Jesus makes all the world of a difference. For when we were without strength, in due time, another way to say that would be at exactly the right time. And all Galatians 4.4 speaks to that. And all the different statements of the fullness of time was come. God sent forth His Son. So at the right time, everything was ready. And God sent Jesus just at the right time so that when you and I come along, we don't have to wait for Him to come. Instead, He's already come. He was made things all ready for us before we ever knew we needed them to be ready. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us, sinful men. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal that Jesus would die for us. I'll show you how big a deal it is. Paul unpacks that in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. I'll translate that. Good luck finding somebody to take a bullet for you. That's, that's That's modern language. Good luck looking for somebody to take a bullet for you. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet, peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. And so it's hard to find somebody who will take my place. If I'm headed to death, sentenced to death, very hard to find somebody to will take my place. And oh, even if you're a righteous man, it's hard to find somebody to take your place. Many years ago, about 12 years ago, we were out in Kodidanga, had a group come and visit us from the States. I don't see Miss Abby. I think she's with the Children's Church this morning. It's a group from her home church, Herndon, Virginia. Uh, that's, Herndon, Virginia is right next to Washington, D.C. And so there's a group of about 14 guys that came to visit us in Corridanga, and all of those guys were the who's who from America. Now, they came to help us in the jungle build a hangar and do some medical work, and these guys just came and donated their time. Amazing group of guys, wonderful group of guys. But I gotta tell you, just a, behind the scenes of who these guys were, three of them worked in the White House, all right, they don't call it the White House for nothing, right? That's, they, three of them worked in there. One of them was the personal plumber. One was a facilities manager. The other one was oversaw the security at the White House. These guys had to have approval to leave the nation. One was an FBI agent, and two were CIA agents. When you asked them, what do you do? They said, don't ask me that question. <laughs> These guys were something else. Two of them were Army doctors. It was a phenomenal group of guys to come and bring to Cody Now, right before they got on the plane in America... My friend, Victor, the White House plumber, said, I think it would be really funny if you guys could put on some kind of a drama when they arrived. He says, would you do something and really scare our pastor? I said, I can do that. We're Kodidunga, We can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I talked to our guys there in Kodidanga and they got all excited, and the little idea I gave them, they took it over the moon. To be honest, when it happened and it went down, one of them swung a club at my head, and I thought it was for real. (laughs) This happened so fast, we came around the corner, there's 14 of them, and you can just imagine, you're walking in a jungle trail, 14 guys, they get spread out a little ways. And so the front guys are seeing what's happening, and the back guys still don't have any idea what's coming, right? And so the first guy in the line was Pastor Pittman, and the guys that were in the front, and you know, they're dressed up with grass skirt, bone in the nose, everything, paint, war paint, and they've got their clubs and bows and arrows, and spears are flying between the group. And these guys, two guys from our church, one was a song leader and one was a deacon. These two guys grabbed the pastor. pastor doesn't know who they are. All he knows is these guys just grabbed him. They grabbed him and dragged him into the bush. One of them looked at him and said, shut up white man, we're going to eat you. I didn't even know they spoke English and here they are. Drag him off into the bush and as he's going off into the bush, the rest of the group is just about petrified. Now the best part of all of it is I had an intern that was with me, a young guy from the US, and he was up on the hillside with a video camera and he got it all on video. Now, here's the part that I want you to grasp. While the pastor was being dragged off into the bush to be eaten, the three guys at the back of the line, one of them an FBI agent, one of them works at the White House, one of them, I don't know what he does, the three of them come around the corner, and they see their pastor getting dragged off in the bush, caught on video. Those three, like a bunch of cowardly little schoolgirls, turned around and ran. (laughs) FBI, my ear! (laughs) You see, they proved, verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. And they, you asked them that morning, would any of you give take a bullet for Pastor Pittman? They all would have lined up and said, yes, sir, shoot us all. <laughs> but when the arrows started flying, they were turning tail and running. Peradventure for a good man, one would even dare to No way. Not going to happen. But, then in verse 8 we see, but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did the very hardest thing to do. He showed His love to us in this moment where He goes, I'm going to take the hardest thing ever. I'll not just take a bullet. I'll take the wrath of God. I'll exemplify this one. The opposite. I was about 15 years old and I was living in my parents' house still Our neighbor had three Rottweiler dogs. These three Rottweilers were the nastiest, meanest dogs you ever saw. We never gave them food because we were afraid they were going to bite us. As kids, we were in our yard, they were on the other yard, and there were places on the top of the wooden fence where they had bitten the top of the fence. These are nasty, wild pack of dogs. And one afternoon, the neighbor was working on his fence... And he did not complete the job and left the fence open between our yard and his yard. Now, we knew about it before we went to bed. And dad said, boys, don't go in the backyard because the neighbor's dogs are out there. We went to sleep that night. The next morning, I got up early. When I got up early, I walked into the kitchen and out of habit, I opened the back door. I wasn't thinking about what was going on in the yard. All I thought about was, this is normal, and we had a little poodle dog. If you know what a poodle looks like, little curly-haired foo-foo little dog. We had this little curly-haired poodle dog, and all every morning, it was my habit, I would come and I would open the door and let the poodle dog go outside. And so here, I walk into the kitchen, I open the door, and I let the little Fifi go outside. And as soon as the dog walked out on the back veranda, I remembered, oh no! Don't let the dog outside because there's three Rottweilers out there. And I opened the door and took one step out, and I said, Fifi, come back inside. <laughs> now, somehow that awoke the wrath of Satan from next door, and those three Rottweilers came running quickly, and I realized it's not gonna end well. And I stood there on the back veranda, And I screamed like a little schoolgirl. It's still dark outside. I'm going to wake up the whole neighborhood in this moment. Now, when I screamed, I thought for sure, Fifi's done. Go into heaven. Bye bye. In that moment, my dad was asleep. Two rooms away, he was asleep. But he was on that veranda faster than I realized he could even hear me or get out of bed. And I know why he came to that veranda, because he heard me scream like a little schoolgirl, And he thought for sure, those demon dogs are about to eat my son. And so he came running out, and when he got on the back veranda, he realized that I was fine. And in a split moment, his attention went from me to Fifi. And there was Fifi down on the ground, off the veranda... And it's one Rottweiler picked up Fifi in his mouth. And here comes the second one, and I'm thinking, it's over. And I thought, Dad, we're just going to stand here and watch this happen. It's going to be terrible. And my dad did the unthinkable he jumped down in that yard and punched that Rottweiler (laughs) right in the head. My dad's upstairs right now in the overflow. You're my hero. You know what drew dad out of sleeping slumber to the veranda? A love for his son. He doesn't want his son to be consumed by the demon dogs. And then he gets there and he realizes we're this far into it. We're going to go ahead and take care of Fifi as well. Those dogs yelped and cried and ran away and Fifi came home just fine. But I'll never forget as he demonstrated his love and put his life on the line. This is what God has done for us. Scarcely for a righteous man will one give his own life for another. It's impossible to find someone. There has to be deep love that's involved in order for you to give your life for another. And that's exactly what's happened with God. He loved us. He displayed His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, not even sons yet. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, this is a glorious thought and great example for us. I know that perhaps you remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, this is the gift that comes to us. Now look at verse 9, and I want to show you how does Jesus provide this salvation? How does he do it? It's in verse 9. Much more than being now justified, now Every time we've seen how we are justified in the book of Romans, we've seen justified by faith. That's our part. But this one's his part. Therefore, now being justified by his blood. So can we let that sink in and realize that it took Jesus going to the cross, having his beard plucked out, having human beings whom he had created and nurtured from their birth to spit upon him. For him to put his arms out and them to drive nails into his arm and pierce his side and him to shed his blood on the cross for you and I. We're justified, but it's not a cheap thing. We're justified by his blood. Therefore, being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. He provides for everyone that believes. He provides us salvation from the wrath of God. Now let's see the second one. It's in verse number 10. What does Jesus provide for us as believers? He provides, number one, salvation from the wrath of God. Number two, he he provides assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation. I'll show it to you in verse 10. Verse 10 does not have the word assurance, but I want you to follow the logical thought. It's there. Verse 10. For if... When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So remember that this salvation has to do with future salvation. We shall be saved from His wrath through Jesus. Now, in verse number 10, He's following the same thought. We've been reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, being reconciled, we shall be saved. By his life. So remember, Jesus went to the cross, took the wrath of God, and then he went into the tomb, and he was in the tomb for three days. And then God raised him up because we were justified. And here's Jesus now risen, and it's as if with his resurrection and with his life, he is even keeping us. Now this is going to give us a glimpse into what's coming in chapter 6. When chapter 6, he tells us, if any man, we're in Christ. We've been in Christ for his His death, and now we are dead to sin, and now we are with Him, risen. We are risen now, and we have power over sin. Sin no longer has power over us. And now this idea that Jesus is risen, and with His resurrection, and with His life, He will keep us. So I think a best way to describe this, or give an example of this, is if you see someone who is given something that is of much value, if it's just given to them, they don't care for it as much as if they had to work for it and perhaps you have had to experience this yourself. maybe it was a car, some large purchase and it took you time and you saved and you saw that and you wanted it but it took you time to save and you gave up meals and you gave up entertainment you gave up things you suffered in the short term so that you could gain in the long term you Gained it. It cost you dearly to own it. Well, now you're going to look after it. Because you want it to last a long time. And this is the same very same idea with Jesus. He has purchased us with His blood. The most precious thing there ever was in the whole universe. God sent Jesus to the cross shed His own blood so that you and I could become His children, so we can be reconciled to God. So now we are reconciled to God. It's not as if Jesus just pays it and don't worry about it and go on forever. No, He paid it and then He rose again from the dead so He can look after it. So now being reconciled by Jesus, we will be saved from God's wrath. And so here we have salvation from God's wrath and we have assurance of that salvation. If you want to turn there, you can. It's in Romans chapter 8. You can turn there or it's on the board. Romans chapter 8 speaks to this. Paul makes statement to this. What shall we say? Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? He has done the hardest thing there ever was to do, namely, give His Son. Think of what it cost heaven for Jesus to go to the cross. God gave that. It cost Him. The hardest thing ever. If he gave Jesus, will he not also freely give us all things? So then the question comes, verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. God's the one that made you right with him. He declared you righteous. Who will declare you unrighteous? Satan certainly can't because Jesus, 1 John chapter 2 says that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father ever interceding for us. So Satan can try his best. And you might say, well maybe Jesus would. No, look at verse 34 here's what he says, "Who is he that condemneth? Same question. Who's going to condemn you? Is Jesus Christ that died? yea, rather that is risen again? Who is ever at the right hand of God? He makes intercession for us. I say it again, God's for you. He saves you, and then he keeps you. You will not be plucked out of his hand. You see, Jesus provides for us assurance of our salvation. So what does Jesus provide? Number one, salvation from the wrath of God. Number two, assurance of salvation. It cost him dearly. He will always take care of our salvation. And then number three, I see this in verse 11. He provides atonement with God. Atonement with God. Let's see it in verse number 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. It's worth pointing out that this word atonement shows up 70 times in the Bible, and this is the only time in the New Testament. Every other time the word atonement is used, it's used in the Old Testament 69 times. And we come into the New Testament and Paul uses it one time. And you might remember some months back, we described the word atonement. There is not another English word that works. The closest you can get is reconciled. Literally, the words at one with God. At one meant Atone with God. So Jesus has provided the atonement, the way for us to be reconciled back to The Father, And so what has Jesus given us? He's given us atonement. He's made us right with Him. I'll look at that in a minute, but let me look at the opening phrase in verse 11. And not only so. I don't know if you've picked up on that, but that's a repetitive phrase throughout verses 1 to 11. So glance back to verse number 2. I circled the word also in my Bible. In that, He was saying, hey, by the way, we were justified by faith. We had peace with God. And we also had access by faith. And then verse 3, not only so. And then he talks about glory and tribulation. Now in verses 6 to 9, he talks about how Jesus has taken our place in the wrath of God being placed on Him. And then verse 11, and not only so. Here's another one. We get to joy in God because of what Jesus has done for us by making us at one with Him. You see, the gospel will transform your life. You get out of hell? Oh, that's the easiest one. You get out of hell. You gain heaven. It's a glorious thought. I get adopted into his family. I get peace with God and I get the grace to stand in. I get hope and tribulation. And I get a comforter in the midst of trials. I get salvation from the wrath of God and assurance of the salvation. Notice, by the way, it's the salvation from, some salvation from wrath in his death and it's assurance in his life. And then also I get atonement with God. And I love the phrase that he uses here in the middle of verse 11. Not only so... But we joy, we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We joy. That root word for joy is the same that we've now seen for rejoice, boast, and glory. So maybe you remember, because every time I talk about this, I bring up 1 Corinthians 31. Let him that glorieth glory in the cross. You don't boast in anything except for God. So then let's apply that principle into this verse also. We boast in God. We rejoice in God. We glory in God. We joy in God. I've said it many times before, and perhaps it's good for us to repeat, happiness is fleeting, but joy is settling. I joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If I can just make a side note here, I think it's worth pointing out because it was in one of our songs this morning. It's also in this verse. Our purpose statement as a church, many times some people shorten it to the phrase, knowing Christ and making Him known. But know that that is only half of it. We exist to glorify God by knowing Christ and making Him known. So if you look at the purpose statement, the larger purpose is to glorify God. And how do we do it? By knowing Christ and making him known. This is so very important for the chief end of man is to glorify God. So I'm going to I was created I was created to give him glory. And that's going to happen by me knowing Jesus. Me putting my trust in Jesus and me making Jesus known, but all of this with Jesus is to glorify God. Oh, please don't cheapen it and just make it about Jesus. Jesus is always reflecting the glory back to the Father. So see him in in verse 11, we joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can't do it apart from Jesus Don't think that all roads lead to God. No, no, no. I glorify God and I do that through the one single road. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's Jesus. So I come to Him through Jesus. I glorify God by knowing Jesus and making Him known. And so we have this atonement. We are at one with God because of Jesus' work on the cross. Now let me close with this thought. Where were we and where are we now? So where were we? If I can point them out. In my Bible, I've got them circled in two different colors. I doubt you brought two different colors pens this morning, so maybe you can circle one and underline the other. Whatever works for you. I'll show you where we were. Where we were. Verse 6. Where were we? Before we put our trust in Christ, where were we? When we were yet without strength. Later in verse 6, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's where we were before Jesus. We were without strength and we were ungodly. Verse 8, he describes us again. God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. That's where we were. One more, verse 10. Just in case you thought being ungodly and without strength and a sinner was oh so, not so bad. How about we try verse 10's word? For if when we were, I want your help here, when we were what? Enemies. We were enemies against God. And I'll quote Jonathan Edwards' words here. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, The Sinners of the Hand, in the Hands of the Angry God This is what he said, and I want you to listen to the description of us as sinners, enemies against God. This is what he said. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You can think of how you look upon a venomous serpent and how we detest it. And we can say, oh, so much infinitely more God looks upon us in our sin." And He had every right to leave us there. He had every right to cast us away from Him. But the two, two words in verse number 8, I'm so thankful for, but God. Not only is He just and holy, not only will He punish sin with His wrath, the full fury of His wrath, He's also gracious. And He gives opportunity to men to come to Him. So let me show you where we are now. If you have trusted Christ, if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus, this is where you're at now. Verse number one, we have peace with God. And verse number two, we have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand. And verse number two, again, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And verse number three, we glory in our tribulation. And verse number 5, we have comfort from the Holy Ghost. Verses 8 and 9, we're justified and we're saved from God's wrath through Jesus' death. And verse number 10, we're reconciled and we're assured of salvation through the life of Christ. And then verse number 11, we have atonement with God. So that's where we were, and this is where we are. So our one singular response to all of this is verse number 10. We also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in Him. Boast in Him. Glory in Him. Find your joy in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would glory in You through Jesus. Father, I pray that we would think on... The gospel and whether our lives have been transformed by the gospel. Have we trusted the Lord Jesus? For if not, oh, the wrath of God abides upon us. We are enemies against God. And so, Lord, I pray this morning for any who be among us who have never put their trust in Jesus, that this morning would mark a day when they say, today I trusted Jesus. And they can know with assurance that they're saved from wrath. So before I close this morning, I might ask, heads bowed and eyes closed. No one's looking around this morning. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Has the gospel transformed your life? If you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, I would like to put my trust in Jesus. Can I have somebody show me from the Bible how to put my trust in Jesus? You can just raise your hand, just slip your hand up. I'll have somebody come. Get you the two of you can go sit in a private office and talk to somebody about putting your trust in Jesus. Is there anybody like that? You just raise your hand and say, Pastor, I'd like to talk to somebody about putting my trust in Jesus. Is there one like that? Pastor, I'd like to put my trust in Jesus. Is there one? Is there another? I'd like to put my trust in Jesus. Is there one? Another one? Father, you see our hearts and you know our hearts. I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters who have put their trust in you. Oh, may we not cheapen the grace of God. May we glory and joy in God. Boast of your goodness to others. And, Father, I pray that you would shine. Your love would shine upon our hearts and your light, love would shine through our lives. Thank you for the goodness of Jesus. May your name be glorified in our hearts and in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, church. Have a wonderful day.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Matt Allen of Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We would love to have you join us for service if you are in the area. If you need help with transportation, please give us a call on 7009-1000. Again,
1: it's 7009-1000.